to everybody listening on Spotify, Overcast, Anchor.fm, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Farm, a show dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm Matt Kovitz, and as always, joining me, Sam Shapiro. Sam, how are you? I'm just swell, Matt. How are you? I am doing great. It's one of my favorite times of the year in the baseball calendar, and that's what we'll start with. Hall of Fame ballot is out. It's a great way to get your kick of nostalgia and just watch all the guys that are going to be on it. The new people this year, we have some interesting ones. Tim Hudson, Barry Zito, Mark Burley, A.J. Burnett, my personal favorite, Nick Swisher, with Troy Hawkins, Michael Kadire, a bunch of guys who are more than likely going to get maybe one or two votes at the most. But I love this part of just seeing the guys who qualified, had those 10 years, just were not Hall of Fame level. The rest of it's boring to me because you know they're good. I want to see the fringe guys. Yeah, I have to say, if uh, this were the Hall of Fame for network sitcom cameos instead of baseball, Swisher would be 100% in on the first ballot. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely weird seeing these guys who were mainstays of our, of our childhoods finally reach this point in their post-playing careers where they're you know, being evaluated. Like you said, these guys are mainly going to drop off the ballot over the next couple of years. Uh, one thing I will say, we were talking about this before we went on, Burley, in my opinion, has the numbers to make it into the hall 100%. But issues with the media and you know his popularity uh, therein could push him to be a, a second or third time around guy before they finally give him uh, the 75% that he needs. I agree, without a doubt. He was never the most dominant pitcher, just showed up, did his job, only like took three seconds in between pitches and got out of there. Was one of the most durable guys of the 2000s in an era where that started to get less and less appealing, he would consistently throw well over 200 innings and always make his starts. Was a big part of that 2005 team. I'd like to see him get at least somewhat further than the rest of these guys. And I think he can. Now, the real question for me uh, is you have Kurt Schilling heading into his last year on the ballot. He got 70% of the vote last year. He only needs 5% more. But if we're talking about guys who have pissed off the media for reasons of personality and politics and whatever the fuck else he has going on. That, that makes me think that it, it's real dicey for him. If it comes down to the wire, how do you see it uh, shaking out, Matt? Listen, I have to be objective. He has the numbers of a hall of famer in an era that was plagued by steroids. He, according to himself is clean, but it's not just regular friction with the media. He is outright called journalists, the enemy of the people. He is Everything political about him makes it seem like he's a person to avoid. But you have to at least consider it. And I don't like saying it, but I think he's deserving of a spot in Cooperstown, no matter how terrible he may be. Yeah, I think uh, I I hate to say it, but I I agree with you. Thinking back to when he was on the Sox, I think that uh, the, the role he played in leading that team to its first World Series in 86 years I think that alone should be the kind of thing that boosts him over the top. Obviously, a, a true dominant frontline starter. You know, you don't you don't see guys winning twenty games in a season uh, with the ease that he did. And I think one thing that also stands out to me uh, is he was doing his thing uh, for quite a few years in the shadow of Randy Johnson, arguably one of the greatest to ever do it. I am kind of dreading what his uh, induction speech would be. I think that there would be a lot of gratuitous uh, Nazi references. He likes to make those. But again, like you said, if we're just being objective, uh, I think that I, he, I think he, he has to be pushed over the hump this year. And it's just hurtful to say, because this dude sucks. 
Oh yeah, no, he's terrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let him date my daughter if I had a daughter. <laughs> it's just a matter of him having those numbers, doing it the right way, quote unquote. Doesn't matter. I, that speech will be interesting. He is a first ballot Hall of Famer and bothering Trevor Bauer on Twitter. Moving on, <laughs> some crazy news coming out of Chicago that may have been all but inevitable. Theo Epstein, the president of baseball operations since the 2012 season, stepping down from his role. According to sources, he's going to take a year off and then start looking for roles. But this is an interesting move. The architect of the ending of the drought in Chicago. Unfortunately, they could not get to that point where they became dynastic. Great team in 2016. Great young hitting core. And it's almost like these guys have not reached their full potential for what they could have been. That being said, I don't know how greedy you can get saying, oh, that he only won one championship. We should have had three. I think Cubs fans should be very happy with what they had while also admitting that he may have had shortcomings in this tenure here. So I'm just looking at the list of teams by how long it's been since they've won a World Series. So we have Cleveland, which has not won since 1948. Fun fact, my uh, late grandmother was uh, in the stands at that series uh, while she was pregnant with my father. So no way. Uh, I think I'm... I'm, I'm blaming it on him. I, I might have, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about the legend. I know that uh, my grandparents, they lived in Cleveland then. They saw it. They saw Indians games. I don't know, in hindsight, if 100% they were there during the World Series, but in any event... Uh, that's the I story that, you stick with, regardless. That's, it is, and I think that uh, the, the curse uh, is uh, something that lies on the, the shoulders of my father. So you have them, you have the Rangers, who have not won since they began as the Washington Senators uh, in 1961. And you have the Brewers and Padres, uh, both of whom came into the league in 69 and haven't won the World Series yet. So if you're the curse breaker, I think that one of those four teams is where you're going to end up in a year. But uh, shenanigans aside, uh, he's still arguably, I would say, one of the best front office minds of his generation. Um, and building a dynasty, that's hard. Especially in uh, you know an era like this one, where you have uh, medium and smaller market teams being more competitive year in year in and year out than they ever have been, I think to kind of even create a team that's a consistent you know division winner or division contender, um, that's something that Cubs fans uh, have gone without for long periods of their history. Um, and so I think that even though uh, he's gone, there's talk of you know breaking up the band a little bit with uh, Chris Bryant's future there uncertain. Uh, there's still a pretty decent skeleton that he's leaving in place there. And he, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the first young upshot guys in his thirties who came from an Ivy league school who took over a team. And of course, in the time as Boston, he became known as the guy who was breaking that curse. And in his mold have come dozens of other GMs who are fresh out of the Northeast, fresh out of economics degrees, and just now running the show in the front office. We stand for nerdy white Jewish boys from the Northeast. We, there's nothing we have besides that. Now on to a much more somber story for me as a Yankee fan. In 2013, it was a snowy day in the winter. And I found out in the middle of a makeshift job interview for career day that Robinson Cano signed with the Seattle Mariners. I was gutted. I wanted him to stick around in New York forever. They lowballed him and instead selected Jacoby Ellsbury with a $142 million deal. And we all know how that went. Five years in Seattle don't go great. Goes to the Mets in a very lopsided deal that has Jared Kelnick in Seattle just primed to take over. Tested positive again. The first time was in 2018 as a member of the Mariners for a masking agent and a diuretic. This year, testing positive for straight up Stanzolol, which is a steroid. And that's a thing you explicitly cannot do. Suspended for the entire 2021 season. 
though it doesn't seem like Mets fans are too upset by it. He had a great year in 2020 in a very limited sample. He dealt with a quad injury. He dealt with COVID early on in the season. But now there's a logjam in the infield that's not going to have to be realized. Jeff McNeil was likely going to play second. And of course, if that doesn't happen, there's that guy from the Bronx who also plays second, who is now available to an owner with the richest pockets in the game. You know, I'm glad that you uh, had the courage to bring that up yourself. I know that's that's not a pleasant thing to be thinking about, but honestly, this seems like a Steve Cohen move from the little we know about him. You know, he wants to contend immediately. You know, even though there is that log jam, uh, plugging in uh, the third best player in the AL. uh, was, Was he the batting champion this year? He was. He was around 400 until like early September. Holy shit. Yeah, like that's, I can just picture Steve, you know, licking his lips at the thought of being able to plug a guy like that into, into the third spot in that lineup. I think, yeah, even though there is the log jam, um, as we mentioned before, a lot of these guys are very versatile. Um, are, are you frozen right now? Oh, you're not frozen? Oh, shit. You can keep, you can keep I'm, still I'm a like great no actor. Else. Yeah. I'm just, I'm focused <laughs> on the, I'm focused on you. Wow, this as uh, someone with ADHD, I, I cannot relate. Um, anywho, um, even though there are a lot of infielders on this on this Mets roster right now, they're versatile guys. Jeff McNeil, uh, you can stick him at, at in the corner outfield. You can probably have him, you know, play first in an emergency if you don't have uh, Pete Alonso or Dominic Smith available. Guillaume, he does he can do second and third. Uh, Rosario, you can shift him around. Jimenez, you can shift him around. Uh, and so I think that having having that kind of versatility is, is important. And knowing the Mets, uh, there are going to be injuries. That's just kind of an iron rule of, of baseball that the Mets, the Mets are not going to be able to finish a season with, with the depth chart they started with. So I think this would be a really nice move for them to make. That's what terrifies me. Cause it makes so much sense. Ahmed Rosario may be as good as gone. There was a picture that was posted about the Mets future in 2021 on some official accounts. And he wasn't included. So that led to rampant speculation about where he may end up if he even in the future plans. I think he could be a trade asset as well. And as for those injuries, believe it or not, over the last two seasons, they've been some of the healthier teams in the league. And they've just outright been awful, which is surprising because the issue in 2018, the issue in 2016, even though they made the playoffs, was that everyone got banged up. That hasn't been the case as much. They're just not as talented. You know, it's really weird to think about in regards to the Mets. You always think, oh, they have the best arms in the league, the best rotation. It's very Legion of Boom-esque. The Legion of Boom was seven years ago. The Seahawks defense is not good anymore. We're going to have to remember now, the Mets offense is good. The pitching is the weak spot. Hopefully no one on that Mets staff pulls a Brandon Browner uh, although hmm, Matt Harvey, he's been going down a weird road. <laughs> I don't know how much I can speculate about that. <laughs> Before Matt Harvey's listening to us and then sues us for pulling a browner. Oh boy. Uh, anyway, back to back to things that are uh, less legally dubious for us to talk about. <laughs> I, th- I think that there's still been uh, some some decent attention paid to uh, developing that pitching staff. We've talked about David Peterson before. Really, a revelation this year coming up with the you know sub four uh, ERA in his debut. You know, getting to getting to get another year of Stroman and seeing uh, if he can, you know, more fully regain his form. I also think that, you know, and this is going to kind of be one of, uh, I think the secondary effects of a guy like Cohen coming in is that whatever baseball operations uh, staff he sets up, uh, they're going to be paying a lot of attention to pitching. And I think that um, there are a lot of definite trends you can see in terms of teams that have been successful in doing that. You know, I think attention to college arms in particular is something 
Uh, I focus on a lot. I think that that's obviously, you know, your, your lowest risk demo to be kind of focusing on. Um, and so if you can, if you can kind of, you know, follow what, you know, the Tigers and the Royals have been doing the past couple of years, really loading up on these guys, great college track records who have showed out on the U on the national team in the, you know, collegiate summer leagues. I think that there's a, there's a model for that. And so, if you can kind of orient your draft strategy in that, in that manner, in a way, obviously the Mets also have a thing for their, you know, their, their high potential uh, high school players. You saw Pete Crow Armstrong, you know, get taken in the first round. He was at one point thought of as like a top five, top 10 pick uh, Isaiah green in the second round uh, of this past year's draft, apparently looked amazing in the instructional league. So if they can kind of find a nice balance between between these strategies, I think that uh, pitching shouldn't be a long-term concern for that. Queens is going to be fascinating for the next few years. Moving on to their NL East rivals, the Atlanta Braves making a move. One of the earliest free agency signings, Drew Smiley, a one-year, $11 million deal. Smiley, of course, was on Team USA in the World Baseball Classic for his UCL, had Tommy John surgery, was out of the game for two years rehabbing, finally got back and is making a decent amount of money for a starting pitcher. I know the market is very strange this year and will be topsy-turvy. Starting pitching still seems like you want to pay for it. $11 million is a very good number for a guy like him. Interesting, though, that a guy like Brad Hand doesn't deserve $10 million, but Smiley comes in and makes eleven. I guess the value of those innings is certainly important, and Smiley has proven his health. He's back to where he was. I'd like to see him succeed. Yeah, I think that uh, this might have been something prompted by uh, something we discussed earlier about the Braves this uh, this year, which was kind of how their their rotation really fell into uh, you know some murky waters uh, with with Soroka getting injured. Obviously, Max Fried and uh, Ian Anderson. Uh, one of the better one-two punches uh, in the league this year, but having to rely on on Kyle Wright. Uh, and Bryce Wilson, although Wilson uh, looked like he was kind of coming to his own towards the end, uh, that's you know a little a little unsettling if you're a team that uh, you know your goal is to win the division, uh, you know to advance as far as you can in the playoffs. They were one game away from the World Series this year, and so being able to slot uh, a guy like Smiley into the middle or back end of the rotation that really does a lot for you, not just in terms of your uh, your typical five man rotation, but uh, you know, in a postseason series where you can have you you can have you know your four solid guys, you know, maybe you move either him or uh, or, uh, or or Anderson to the pen, depending on how you're feeling. I think that just gives him a lot more flexibility, and I think that kind of might be why he he made out so well for himself. And you know, in his defense, uh, this was a very nice season he had: uh, nine walks to forty two strikeouts. That makes it look like the smiley of old might start to come, uh, be coming back. And although he's 31, you know, he's not really going to be kind of, you know, growing into a better pitcher. If this year was any indication, he's healthy. He can eat up some innings and he can look pretty decent while doing so. I assume you can, in your head, replace him with Cole Hamels. He was a guy that was brought in for the same reason, a lefty on a one-year contract. He got injured pre-pandemic and was just never able to return to a full level. So now that he's out of the picture, you have another guy, a stable veteran who is hopefully sticking around. I mean, I, I also just couldn't picture Cole Hamels on another NL East team. That was a little too much for me. So uh, it worked out. He knew that. And that's why he sat out most of the year. Moving forward, some good news for the health of Eduardo Rodriguez. He missed the entire season after testing positive for COVID-19. He was having heart issues 
and as recently as August was having trouble standing up for long periods of time and walking around. He was really in bad shape, but in his own words, he is back to 100% and will be ready for the 2021 season. The Red Sox always said that he'd be making a full recovery. They seem pretty confident in that, but that was incredibly scary for a long period of time. Yeah, no, I think that um, he was kind of, in my mind, the face of you know what happens when this pandemic goes wrong. There was a very real chance it looked like that his career would never be the same. And you know, obviously, you know his health is paramount, and that's really what's important. But from a baseball perspective, when you think about the lost earnings based off of the kind of pitcher he was looking like before this. Um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a real tragedy. And that's something that I think, you know, it would really have behooved more of his fellow players to kind of think about that kind of stuff before they started disregarding the protocol and, you know, going out gambling or carousing or whatnot. I think just the bottom line with this is, you know, fuck COVID, stay home, be safe and be smart. And it goes, you know, for everyone, not just major league baseball players, although uh, it seems like they kind of need to hear it more than the rest of us, if you ask me. Yeah. Rodriguez tested positive in his intake before going to this didn't this didn't occur while he was with the Red Sox. So I guess there's a silver lining in that. But the fact that no one really took his case and was like, oh no, maybe we should take this seriously. It's a it's a bit scary, but that's state of affairs. So hopefully that he's back on a full track. Hopefully he can stay healthy. He's one of the best lefties in the game that you don't really hear about. Just a stable presence in that rotation. I know he's had his knee issues, but I would imagine a sturdy guy is useful, especially for a Red Sox rotation that has a bunch of question marks. And as a fan, I would imagine you can test that as well. Yeah. And, you know, not to relive what was a miserable season for me, but just seeing some of the names that had to get trotted out uh, as starting pitchers, Matt Hall, Chris Mazza, Kyle Hart, Ryan Weber. I mean, okay, to be fair, Weber uh, had a couple of decent appearances as, as a long man, but these were like barely triple a guys that they were having to, you know, use in the rotation this year. And so I think any sort of contribution you can get from Erod is just leaps and bounds above what we've had to be dealing with. Um, we'll see if there's any sort of other off season acquisition. Obviously the Sox are probably less starved for money than most teams in the league, but as we have discussed and we'll continue discussing everyone's hurting uh, mid-tier free agents are definitely not going to be getting uh, what they're objectively worth, much less what they feel they're worth. So it remains to be seen if there's going to be any other rotation upgrades, but getting getting him back uh, in and of itself is just, is very important. Moving forward, Mike Clevenger, a guy who has been a topic of conversation on our show over the last couple months, signed a two-year deal with the San Diego Padres. So he will be back with the Friars. The reason it's a two-year deal, however... One year is going to be spent rehabbing Tommy John surgery. AJ Preller may have just gotten AJ Preller trading for a guy who had notable health concerns. Now, this is the second time the Indians have gotten out of a pitcher. Corey Kluber, for example, struggled after a broken arm in 2019, shipped away to the Texas Rangers, and he only made a single start last year. It's almost like they know something about these medical records. The Padres fans are incensed that something may have been wrong with Club Dog, but I guess this may be par for the course. He's a guy whose windup leads to injury concerns every single time he pitches. This is going to be his second Tommy John surgery. Unfortunately, there are not many guys who recover from two TJs and are back to that same elite level. So going to be fascinating to follow if he can get back on the wrong side of 30 after two major elbow surgeries. Yeah, that's really bad. Uh, he doesn't use the inverb to W, does he? I don't think he does. He's just very thin and just swings the ball. Gotcha. It seems like it's a bit of an issue. Because when, whenever I hear about, you know, pitching mechanics causing arm issues, that's just always where my mind goes. Uh, obviously, that was a, you know, big deal with Strasburg and, you know, other other pitchers of that era. 
uh, and causing them issues. Back to Clevenger. I think that this stings for the Padres fan base, not just because he's objectively uh, very good at his job when he's healthy, but when you look at what they gave up in order to acquire him, uh, Josh Naylor was hitting like a man possessed uh, during that wild card series this year, looking like he could really be a mainstay in left field for those Cleveland Indians. And also, you know, a guy like Cal Quantrill, who uh, had a bit of a, a rough debut for the Padres in, in 2019, but he really looked like he was figuring it out this year. Uh, he's a guy for the Indians where he, they could slide him into that rotation or, and this is just a, a hot take that uh, I can't substantiate. They could try and mold him into a, you know, into a high leverage late innings guy, like, like his dad ended up being hell with no Brad hand on the roster. He could be a candidate to close games for them in the spring. And, you know, on top of that, the, uh, the, the Indians also picked up uh, Owen Miller from the Padres, a shortstop prospect out of uh, Illinois State following Paul DeYoung's footsteps there. I think he was a fourth round pick, you know, top, top five round pick, uh, absolutely, you know, smashed in his last full minor league season. He's someone who could be an instant contributor in the, in the infield for the Indians. And even though the Padres kind of have that set with Tatis and Cronenworth and Machado, uh, anytime you, you give up a player who has, you know, the potential to, you know, perform like that, the, the way I have this hunch about Miller, that hurts too. And so I think that, you know, this is really, this is really a Preller move. And we, like you said, we haven't had a lot of those in a while. Uh, it, it's looked like he's figured it out, but what's going on here? Cleveland can't keep getting away with this. They're going to trade Lindor and he's going to hit like an OPS plus of 102 next year and then like become a priest or something. And the Indians will have 11 prospects at their disposal to just stick around in that central. Speaking of the Cleveland Indians, they played the Chicago Cubs in the 2016 World Series. We talked about Theo Epstein earlier in the show. Interesting non-tender candidate here, Chris Bryant. And I alluded to the fact that this offensive core wasn't really getting it done. 2016 MVP has been banged up the last couple of years, has struggled the last couple of years. People believe that the Cubs may not pick up his option. He only has one year left. It seems like he's as good as gone because he remembers 2015, his service time manipulation that didn't really, really put him in the good graces of ownership and vice versa. He was very annoyed by that. This might be the end of an era if they can't find a taker. And I find that unfathomably hard to believe that a team like the Cubs who just won the central, maybe getting rid of one of the guys they thought would be a cornerstone. Yeah. And anytime you see a guy like him, you know, second overall pick in the draft, early career, uh, MVP winner, part of that magical, uh, team that, that, that broke that curse. You, you'd think that there'd be more goodwill, but on the other hand, uh, I think that you really hit the nail on the head when it comes to the service time. You know, that's the kind of thing that really, um, can stick in a player's mind. And I don't think there's any love lost between him and the Cubs organization. And so to me, it kind of, it kind of does make sense. Although the thing is, given how poor of a season he had this year, you have to wonder what the market is going to look like or who's going to be willing to pony up big bucks for him if he gets non-tendered. You know, who's going to want to give up prospect capital uh, in a trade for him? Uh, I don't have the advanced metrics up right now, but his, uh, his OPS without plus is 644. Which I can assure that's, you that's, that's bad. Yeah, we don't need advanced metrics to tell us that's uh, that's not where you need to be. It's just fascinating. He always had a long swing, and that was going to be his undoing. He's been banged up, as I said, the last few years. Seems like it might be catching up with him. I think there's still a lot left, and if he's one of these guys who signs a one-year prove-it deal, he's going to do a lot well for a new organization. Maybe it's just time and place. Maybe he's sick of working in Chicago, sick of playing in Chicago with a team that may not be going anywhere. That's an interesting job that's going to open up, though. Jed Hoyer moved up to the president, taking Epstein's role. Wonder who that GM is going to be. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I've, uh, I'm not up on who uh, the, uh, the hot GM candidates are. 
um, the way I would be with, you know, a managerial opening. But uh, rest assured, uh, this is the Ricketts family, right? We're talking about they've got uh, large pockets. They'll pay for whoever they need to, to get. Go Cubs, go. Last topic we're going to get into before our interview. Rule 5 draft protection deadline coming up. I wanted to ask you, Sam, which organization is going to get pillaged like the New York Yankees have the last three or four years? Which farm system is about to be gutted with multiple teams just ransacking? So when you first told me uh, you wanted to ask me that, I was a little intimidated. Um, but I think I have a decent answer right now. And I'm going to say the Houston Astros. It's, it seems like every week on the show, we marvel at the fact that they were able to pull these random uh, minor leaguers up to, to contribute to their, uh, their improbable run uh, through the postseason this year. Uh, but looking at their recent Rule 5 history, they had three guys drafted last year and uh, two of them, uh, Jonathan Arauz for the Red Sox and Johan Ramirez for the Mariners, uh, not just uh, stuck with uh, their teams the whole way, but held their own in Ramirez's case. I think that's, you know, he's uh, one of those guys who turns into a bona fide major league reliever uh, once his rule five year is up. And so I think the other teams are going to be looking at that tracker record of success, looking at their ability to pull guys like Javier and Paredes up into uh, a major league uh, pitching staff and and get results from them, even though they haven't, you know, had that much experience above advanced A or above double A. Uh, and that if I were a major league GM, I would find that very enticing in terms of looking at the, who they leave unprotected. That's uh, that's another factor. I think we have to talk about is, you know, some teams are going to be facing uh, you know, 40 man roster crunches in terms of guys who are on MLB.com's top 30 list. Houston has eight guys that they have until the end of the day today to protect. And I don't think that uh, that number is going to stay the same between now and the deadline, but it just goes to show uh, how much depth they kind of have uh, at the top of the list. You have a guy like Forrest Whitley, former first rounder, who's kind of been their number one overall uh, for quite some time. Uh, I, I can't see them really, really leaving him unprotected just because of how highly touted he still is. Uh, MLB.com has him 17th overall. I think you got to write him out there. Other than that, uh, there's definitely plenty of, uh, of options there. Another another team that has a lot of guys on that list unprotected so far, the Baltimore Orioles, you know, not traditionally thought of as a super strong farm system, but they could see a lot of guys kind of in their 15 to 30 range and their rankings uh, get picked up, you know, possibly Angels, Phillies. You know, these are other teams. I think that the Phillies in particular, 12 of their top 30, uh, according to LB.com, are eligible, but uh, still unprotected. In terms of big names out there, we talked about Whitley, the Indians, Nolan Jones, Taylor Trammell for the Mariners, Brandon Marsh for the Angels. Uh, these guys, I would be shocked if they don't get picked up between when we're saying this uh, on Friday afternoon of the 20th and when the show airs. But uh, this just goes to show that there are potentially some some interesting names that could come up here. And then, of course, if they're not protected, it's a waiting game. I'm sure general managers are not keen to part with these guys that they've grown up and drafted and developed. It's probably a bit nerve wracking as well. Now, I, one of the first memories of On the Farm I remember was the Rule 5 draft. Josh Rutledge is a guy that sticks out to me because he was one who got selected. I believe it was by the Red Sox, right? Going from the Colorado Rockies and he stuck around for a little bit in 2017. Yes, sir. What a name. That is, that is on the farm war right there. Coming up next week, I'm very excited about this. We're going to be diving into teams' top 10 prospect lists. going to be a great time. We're going to get through all of them. Plenty of guys to profile and pay attention to next year and beyond. Yeah, we'll actually be going on the farm for the first time since, uh, since the reboot, which is really exciting. Can I get a moo? Can I get an oink? Not from me, no. 
Somebody will. We have our studio audience. They'll try to... We'll, we'll get something on that. And now for the main event of this show, we have a guest for the first time in On the Farm history, William Gibney. guest on the farm has ever had Liam Gibney. How are you doing, Liam? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. For context, Liam was on the Diamond Dollars team at NYU that I was also a part of. We ended up winning the competition in fall of 2018, thanks to his generous interest in the program and his generous contributions to the, our prediction of where Bryce Harper and Manny Machado would go. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we did all right. We had a good run at that. Uh, we definitely had some good information, some good content, and uh, learned a lot from you guys. So it was a good experience. We have to thank John Ann as well, our esteemed wow. king of the Diamond Dollars, if he's ever listening to us. Yeah, he's actually uh, he's killing it right now in, uh, on the broadcast. I don't know if you've seen his highlights. I saw that. Yeah, he's one of the English-based announcers in the Taiwan League. Fantastic. Go NYU. Now, Liam, free agency is going to be a whirlwind this year. Of course, the pandemic led to loss in money for teams. A 60-game season without fans in the stands tends to do that. What do you think the winter is going to look like? Is it going to be as frigid as most reporters believe? Well, I think the one thing that we have to address right off the bat is the league is, you know, Rob Manfred came out and said that the league was looking at about $8.3 billion in debt and potentially up to about $3 billion in operational losses. So as far as the free agent market goes this winter, um, and I don't even believe the crop is as great as it has been in past years, but I think it's definitely going to be pretty slow and I do not believe we're going to get the long-term contracts that we're used to in, in prior years. Now, a lot of these issues seem to be coming to a head. We had very slow off-seasons in 2017 and 2018. Last year was a bit of return to form. Guys like Garrett Cole and Anthony Rondon making the money that they did. I'm sure the people at the top will be fine. A Trevor Bauer, he's not going to be making a long-term deal anyway. That's just part of his MO. So I think that should be all right. A guy like DJ LeMay, who will get his money. It just seems like the pandemic exacerbated issues that have been going on. Where is it smart business sense? Where a guy who was at the age of 32 should not be getting a four or five year deal. It's going to be quite interesting to see what it looks like in the next couple of months. Are we going to have the complaints of a very slow and long winter again? Because it seems like it, we're going to go that way. I just want to see what the money totals end up being like. Because 8.3 in operational losses. I know Rob Manford has his flack. He's been criticized a lot over the course of this pandemic. And there were some things I think he did right. Some things I, I think he did quite wrong. But that money is definitely there. I just hope that owners aren't playing poor and arguing that they don't have the money where they actually do have it hidden and they just don't want to spend. Look, the thing here to address is that, you know, these owners aren't really crying poor. I think that the, the issue here is that it's been proven over the past few years and probably since, you know, the payroll gap started to really make a, a big widening gap that the more money you spend as a team, you know, with the few exceptions of like the Yankees and the Dodgers and the large market teams, because, you know, their numbers are a little skewed um, based on market size. But the more money that you spend on your payroll, the less money you make and, you know, factor in the, the major losses this year in revenue and the fact that there was no ticket sales. That's a big issue is that, you know, it, we're not even certain that fans are going to be back in the stands in 2021 yet. So I think that it really is going to be a waiting game. You know what I mean? Um, in that regard. Um, so as far as, you know, teams, you know, that are willing to go out and shell out big contracts to guys, I just don't see it happening. It's all to them. What is the chance of a normal 2021? Would we be starting on time? Is there going to be a delayed opening, but fans are allowed in the seats? I'm sure everybody wants to get back to normal. 
and a lot of this is vaccine dependent. Do you think that teams have a plan in place right now for any contingency? Uh, say a, a vaccine is not out in April and not widely spread. What is the plan going to be? They can't postpone very much longer, can they? <laughs> Listen, uh, I think that's the million dollar question or billion dollars, should I say, in this in, in this uh, case. I don't think anybody knows. I think it really is a waiting game. Um, I think owners are, are and teams alike are, are waiting to see what happens with the vaccine, um, whether the vaccine is going to you know, factor in immediately, or is it going to take some time to kick in? Um, how many are going to be ready available, readily available by the end of 2021? So I think it really is a waiting game. And, and the reason why I think that factors directly into like a slow free agent market is that, you know, until there's more clarity, it's, it's, it's not worth spending the money for these guys, you know? Um, I, I mean, your guess is as good as mine there. I think that it really is going to be a very slow offseason because I don't think teams can really get ready until they know what's going to happen. What was it like just heading into a labor war? That's what it seemed like over Twitter. How bad did things really get, do you think? between the periods of April and June of 2020, where some reporters would be saying, don't worry, they're going to play. Some reporters were chiming death bells on the sport itself, being like, there's going to be cancellations. There's going to be a lockout in 2021. Nothing's going to happen for the next two years. Death to MLB, long live MLB. There, was a, there were a lot of hot takes aplenty. And of course, it ended up with not much an agreement, but a sort of unilateral imposing of what the schedule would be like. How ugly did it get between both sides? Well, well, I think that, I think that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of strong reactions because I don't think people really knew how to take the whole pandemic. It's something that was new to everybody. So I think that, I think everybody, you know, wanted to play baseball. I think everybody wanted baseball to, to happen. I think everybody wanted a 162 game season. I just think that, you know, given the circumstances, it was kind of difficult for them to come to an agreement on things. Um, and the players union and the owners are, are both stubborn in their, in their own sense. So, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but I wouldn't say the relations are, are in a bad, in a bad spot. Um, what I do think, though, is that there, it, you know, these things take time. Pandemics. I mean, these 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 ownership and and the players have to react in real time to things that are going on in the world. And as far as you know, money goes. I mean, the owners ownership, rightfully so, was concerned about how much money they were going to lose, and then having to pay guys 100% of their contract that they were supposedly supposed to be guaranteed before that. Um, you know, you kind of have a hard time swallowing that. So. Um, I think everyone was just trying to argue their case for you know what should happen, and that is just something that takes time. And I think, given the fact that the pandemic really you know took stride in in the spring, right when baseball was getting ready to start up, I just think it caught everybody by surprise and kind of uh, you know needed time to get worked out. It's so easy to say, oh, this is a battle between millionaires and billionaires, and it's not not something that the middle class or lower class of fans can really relate to. Then again, when everyone wanted to come back and play, there were issues right out of the gate with the coronavirus. Teams like the Marlins and the Cardinals dealt with whether it would be uh, stringent protocols or just a mistake that ended up costing them two weeks. In your experience, do you think that these protocols were being followed very well? Do you think that things could have been done better? Because I know there were plans and things have to go on the fly in a situation like this. But... It seems like some of it was improvised and whether it worked, sometimes it felt like they fell backwards into success. No matter how good it was, you could even look at the World Series. There was a bubble until there wasn't and fans were in the seats. Justin Turner having his COVID scare that occurred 
right at the end of the game, he had to be taken out of game six. That could have been a disaster if those Rays won. Do you think that there were issues from the gate or were players not following? Listen, I think it was trial and error. I think that it was new to, like I said before, it was new to everybody. And and it was kind of one of those things where the players weren't used to it. The clubhouse wasn't used to it. The stadium staff wasn't used to it. Ownership wasn't used to it. It was really everyone trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this and how can we tackle this and how can we keep our players safe? How can we keep, you know, everyone safe? That was the ultimate goal is trying to keep everyone safe, you know, regardless of your position on things. So uh, I think that as the season went on, I think they did a pretty good job of, uh, of handling um, the crisis that's going on right now. Now, if they have to, are they going to go back into it? 2021, just right back into that rigid structure. I'm sure there will be some resistance on everybody's side. Um, I think they have to uh, until, until further notice. You know, I think that, that we're obviously, we all have a, a greater knowledge on the virus than we, than we did, uh, you know, in the springtime. Uh, everyone's kind of had their first run at it, um, given the circumstances in society right now. So I think that there is definitely going to be protocol. I think there's going to be a lot of testing. And I think that regardless of how things shake out, um, I think that it's necessary, you know, for the next year. And, Listen, if it, if it means if it means a, a little more testing and a little more protocol to keep everyone safe, I think it's worth it in the end. Because as we've seen in Europe, there have been some lockdowns that are even more strict than the ones that we have in place now, and they've still had sports going on. So I think it can be done. The NFL doesn't seem like it's stopping. I wouldn't want to pause for the NBA or the NHL either. I'd like to see this through, and I think it can be done. You know, as I said before, and as you said before, the labor relations did not look great, even though they may be a bit exaggerated on social media. Of course, there's an expiring CBA that happens at the, after the end of the 2021 season. There were issues at the end of 2016. I remember vividly in around December, it seemed like something wasn't going to get done until the 11th hour. And then the reports came out that all oh, the players got screwed out of this and they need to make fewer concessions. It seemed like we were coming towards a head before all of this. What is the next 12 months going to look like for the future of the game? I hope we don't get to that point. And I think that. Both sides do need each other. And as we saw this season, that it can be successful no matter what the situation is. It's just, it might get a bit ugly in the media, I would imagine. Right. So I think the best way to look at this is kind of to break it down like this. So realistically, as far as the free agency for this offseason goes, I think that's going to impact you know, the negotiations going forward. Um, really, there are five guys on the board, Bauer, Realmuto, Springer, Azuna, LeMahieu, that are probably like levels above the rest of, of the free agents this year. If I had to guess and listen, your guess is as good as mine, but thinking logically, I would, I would have to think that the large market teams that are contending right now are probably the ones likely to go out and get, grab those guys because they are going to be expensive. They're probably going to want multi-year deals. Uh, Bauer, maybe not, but there remains to be seen. I, I, don't, I don't see anyone getting more than five years this year for, for certain. But listen, so the middle market teams and the guys that are like right on the cusp of contention, those guys, given the fact that they already lost money last year and there's potential revenue losses in 2021, it's really, it's not, I don't know if it's in the best interest of those guys to go out and sign the top five free agents. So I think this year, uh, more than ever, is going to be the year of like the one year high potential flyer guy, um, especially for the guys right in the cusp. Because listen, if you sign up, like, let's say you sign a pitcher, uh, let me just throw Mike Fultonowitz as, as an example. You see, sign him for one year, he's 28, he's had a couple of down years, a couple of good years. He comes out and he pitches well, and you guys are, you know, that middle 
cusp team is still in contention, I think that works out great for you. And if not, then you, you flip them to a contender and, and you try and move forward to the next year. But listen, I think that teams are, are going to negotiate probably you know, more sternly than they have in the past. Um, I don't think teams are going to be willing to shell out money, you know, as willingly as they have in the past. And I think that really this, uh, this is going to be interesting. It's, it, it's going to be a ride guys. Buckle up. <laughs> now I really hope that this doesn't lead to the increased disparity in team success, the disparity in parity, if you will. I have to make myself laugh. It's nine months of quarantine. I don't want to see all of these, these five big market teams take everybody. And then there are splits between one team Say we have a full season. One team goes 106 and 56, and there are six teams that lost 100 games. It's less appealing, and I understand the point of rebuilds, and they can work when done correctly. I just don't want the entire league to be doing it, where it's just a have at the top and a have not at the bottom that sort of crunches out the 76 to 86 win teams. It seems like that could be a possibility now. For sure, for sure. I mean, there are teams that have had proven success with you know smaller payrolls, like the Rays and in, in, in Oakland. It's funny though. Actually, I, I was having a conversation with a couple of buddies of mine about this, and how you know I'm a big uh, advocate for a salary cap in baseball. I just think parity is really important, and I kind of think the NFL is a really good model, given the fact that you know you can have a guy like Aaron Rodgers playing in Wisconsin. You know what I mean? Like that would never happen in baseball, and at least not long term. But interestingly, like I. I, I I think that I was talking to my buddies and, and I was saying how the World Series this year, I think was a lose-lose for parity because if the Dodgers win, it's like, okay, you know, they're the top five team in payroll and, you know, they can go out and buy free agents at, at will. But if the Rays win with a, a tiny budget, then it kind of just fuels the fire that, hey, like if the Rays can do it with a small budget, then anyone can. So it was a little sticky this year. I thought it was kind of a lose-lose for baseball with that World Series matchup. I think that there are teams that are like, you know, I would say from the range of like one through five in terms of overall payroll, those guys might go out and try and sign the you know the top five free agents that I mentioned before. Probably from five to you know let's say fifteen, seventeen, it's going to be interesting. I really don't know what they're going to do. I think I know that those guys lost a lot of money last year, and if they're already in the range of five to fifteen, and maybe they were you know a little bit under five hundred and are sort of on the cusp of contention, you know, it's it's tricky for those teams because you can either you have to proceed with caution or you can go out and try and sign make a big splash in free agency, but you know, there's no guarantee. And then financially it could be it could be a problem for those guys. So uh, Liam, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in with a couple of my own questions. Um, I am not the professional sports writer who hosts this podcast, so they're probably not going to be uh, as thoughtful as Matt's. Um, <laughs> professional sports writer. That's an interesting way to put it, but thank you. I mean, you get paid for writing articles about sports, don't I you? I do. You're right. That's, I should put myself down. I mean, to, to, to me, that's kind of what that evokes. <laughs> anyway, um, so we've obviously been talking about um, the effects that uh, this pandemic has had, you know, on teams' ability to you know go out and spend in free agency. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on any potential effects this has on amateur scouting. Cause you know, this is on the farm, you know, we think about, you know, the minor leagues and the draft and, you know, kind of the whole process in addition to you know, covering the majors. And so do you think that these financial woes are getting in the way of teams continuing to do what they've been doing over the years? Or, you know, do you think teams are able to kind of, you know, utilize, you know, technology in ways that kind of, you know, make up for not being able to give the same attention. Um, when you mean scouting, do you mean like potential 
uh, draft picks or guys that are already in the farm? I initially meant to just scout for the draft, but if you have thoughts on, on either one, uh, I'd love to hear them. Well, so I think the good news for a lot of teams is that given the fact that there are organizations like Perfect Game and those showcase platforms, uh, especially given the new technology and the database that teams have, scouting is a little easier um, and you don't necessarily have to show up to you know games in the middle of nowhere to scout a guy anymore. You can kind of you can kind of get a lot through video scouting and, and, and through metrics and statistics and through the databases that these teams have with pitch tracks and everything like that. Um, I mean, yeah, sure. Sure. There's going to be some effect. I would say, um, I would say the effect would be greater on the existing farm players. Like for instance, like in the case of the Orioles, like we, you know, we have that Adley Rutschman who didn't really get to play much baseball last year as like a top five prospect in baseball and former number one pick, uh, given the fact that the minor league season was canceled and he just, you know, he didn't make the move up to the majors this year. He's, you know, he's relatively new in the organization. So with, for those guys that, you know, missed a season and, with given the, you know, the circumstances with the minor leagues and kind of the uncertainty and, you know, teams are starting to cut levels, uh, affiliates. I think the Dodgers cut uh, their affiliate in Ogden, Utah yesterday or something like that. So there, there, it, I would say it affects definitely the existing farm teams more than potential scouting. But again, I, but again, I think that, uh, I think that only time will tell. And I think things will sort themselves out as teams adjust to, uh, you know, everything that's going on. Yeah, no, I remember hearing that, uh, close to the trade deadline, uh, I, I think, uh, teams were able to begin sharing, uh, internal stats. They're uh, compiling from the alternate trading sites. And that was made out to be a big deal in terms of, you know, facilitating trades for minor leaguers. And it, it is very weird thinking of that as kind of the max window, you know, teams would have into, you know, their, their rivals farm systems, uh, in terms of, uh, prepping for the draft. One thing that uh, we saw a lot with the NBA draft, which, which happened uh, a couple of days ago, uh, is, you know, teams are to figure out how to conduct workouts via Zoom, uh, you know, interviews via Zoom. Do you think this is something that uh, that translates well for baseball, and that teams may uh, you know have to do if you know in person stuff isn't isn't feasible? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's a good tool for sure. Um, I think interestingly, you know, the the uh, the front offices of a lot of teams, you know, are going to suffer with the fact that college seasons are not really being played as well, and you know, it's not as easy to travel and communicate with these guys and get to know them as well as you'd like to. Um, I do think that Zoom is a good tool for uh, meet and greets and really trying to like learn personal information about a player, or a guy that you're scouting. But as far as you know, the actual scouting itself goes, I don't know um, how much they can do over a video chat like that. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And obviously, you know, we have no idea how things are going to play out with the vaccine and everything. But obviously, much easier to to go to go out and see these guys. Uh, I think the plan right now is for baseball to kind of proceed, you know, as it normally would in the collegiate level. But really, no way of knowing that. Uh, if we could switch gears briefly, uh, you mentioned uh, before we uh, started recording that, that you're based in Nashville now. A few weeks ago, we discussed uh, here on the show that uh, there's a potential ownership group looking to bring Major League Baseball uh, to Nashville. They've got Dave Dombrowski on board. Uh, what are your thoughts on the city as a potential uh, Major League Baseball market? Listen, I love Nashville. I think it's uh, a booming market right now, a great sports town. I have nothing but good things to say about the city of Nashville. So ultimately, if that's the course the MLB wants to go, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. There's a lot of good, passionate sports fans down here. I, uh, I've gone to a lot of Nashville Predators games. I actually interned for them a few years back. And the energy, uh, especially you know, given the fact that it was, it's not really even a... It shouldn't be a hockey town because it's in the South, but you, you wouldn't believe how crazy the fans are. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a great a great fit for um, 
for a major league baseball team. And actually I've gone to a couple of uh, Nashville sounds games, the AAA affiliate there, the stadium, the venue is great. The fans are great. It's, it's really a, it's really a great city. So I think it would be a, a beneficial for the major league baseball for sure. Yeah. I gotta say, uh, no, no matter what they do, uh, I would be a very strong advocate of keeping their current sounds branding. Uh, the, the logo with the guitar pick, I think is absolute money. And so kind of in a bit of a bigger picture sense, obviously, as you know, as we've been discussing, there are a lot of, you know, financial hits that MLB has taken because of this. Uh, do you think that expansion, you know, with the fees that would be required of incoming teams could be a potential solution to some of these revenue losses? Or is that too much of a to do to really to make that much of a difference? I think that, listen, I mean, I, I, that's, that's a really good question, honestly. Um, I would put it on the back burner until there's a little more clarity. If, if I were in that position, I don't, I don't know how, given the fact that fans aren't allowed in a stadium right now. And the fact that just all the uncertainty, I don't know that an expansion right now would yield the financial benefits that the league would want. I think it would be more beneficial to wait until you can get fans in the stadium. But if they want to start, you know, laying down the blueprints and maybe build a stadium in a city that doesn't have the right facilities, I think, you know, that could, that could definitely work, but I think it's, we're a few years away. Um, especially given the circumstances right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And obviously that would, that would be a multi-year process. I think that, you know, if they were to kind of come out and start something uh, sooner than rather than later, it would just be, you know, announcing, announcing the openings, you know, looking at candidates and, you know, once, once they, uh, if they go that route, if they pick a team, then there's going to be a couple of years of having to build up the farm system. Like you said, make sure the facilities are all set. So uh, either way, I, if this happens, I don't see teams actually hitting the field until, you know, 20, 2023, 2024, 2025. We're way off in hypothetical land here, but uh, let's say Nashville is team number 31. If MLB is adding two more teams, you know, lining itself up with the NFL, having that nice 32 team structure, who would you like to see join with Nashville? Um, obviously, you know, this is something we're not sure if it'll ever happen, but just, you know, from your perspective, meaning player wise, player wise, fan wise, executive wise, whatever, whatever you think. I mean, I think that the, the advantage of a team in Nashville would be ha- having Vanderbilt so close and be, you know, it would be so easily accessible to get over to Vanderbilt and do your scouting over there. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess if, I guess it would be pretty cool to see some of the Vanderbilt grads play in Nashville. Cause I know that a lot of uh, the younger guys that I coach over the summer, I coach a travel baseball team uh, down here in the summer. And those guys are diehard Vanderbilt fans. They, they follow all the draftees in every sport. So uh, it would be pretty cool to see a lot of those uh, like Dansby Swanson type guys uh, end up playing in Nashville for professional career. So, of course, in terms of, you know, what team would come into the league with Nashville, though, um, is that a consideration you'd have in trying to find a, an expansion partner? Do you think MLB should be looking for uh, if there is like a 32nd team and Nashville's team 31? Should MLB be focusing on? finding a market where there's that sort of overlap with a college program with a strong, you know, amateur baseball tradition. Uh, how do you think they should approach that? Listen, I mean, I, that's a good question too. I, I think that ultimately I would try and balance it out if I were going to add an expansion team. So I would, I, if I were going to plan an expansion, I would add two teams. Uh, I think that Vegas would be another interesting market as well. And then you could, you know, have one in the AL, one in the NL and split them up. So yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. I, I, I don't like the idea of having like 16 teams in, in, in one, uh, in one league and then 15 in the other. I just, I like, I, I would want the league to be even in that sense. So yeah. And I, I would also say that just looking at how MLB handled this in the nineties, that definitely seems to be their MO. Uh, Vegas, uh, I think is a really 
interesting choice. Obviously, seeing them get the NHL team going big four for the first time uh, and just the explosion of fan interest there. Uh, they've got the Raiders there with a nice new stadium. Um, and it's, it's interesting also to see that uh, you know, the unease that pro sports leagues might have had about having franchises in you know the gambling capital of the country it doesn't really seem like it's much of a concern anymore my take is a bit of a homer you know i've you know i've been to montreal before i think it's a wonderful city uh, there's obviously been interest in bringing a team back since the expos left on the other hand you know they had their issues with facilities with you know getting fannies in the seats would that be feasible at all do you think or is or is that just a pipe dream bring the expos back i wouldn't say it's a pipe dream i think that it's been talked about you know, I think that Montreal is absolutely a great city. I think it's just kind of contingent upon, you know, is there enough fan interest? Is there, are there people who think it's a good financial investment that remains to be seen, but I would love to see a team back in Montreal. Montreal is one of my favorite cities in the world. And, uh, you know, I think it would be cool to expand up into Canada a little bit more. Uh, like I kind of like that about the NHL, about how they have so many Canadian teams kind of mixed in it. Uh, kind of add some intrigue to the league. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it if that's the route that they want to go. I, I don't know if that would be an expansion team or, how, you know, someone would relocate to Montreal, but I think it's definitely interesting for sure. Yeah. And I think that's uh, at least from, from my perspective as someone who follows uh, uh, the draft side of things pretty closely, uh, there've been a lot more Canadian players uh, entering the league, whether, you know, they're getting scouted up in high school or in travel ball there, or uh, seeing Canadian guys coming over and playing collegiately. And so uh, I think that's, uh, it's weird to think of Canada as, as an untapped market in anything. It's you know, obviously a pretty prominent country, but in terms of baseball, I think there's a lot of room to grow there. Last question on that. Do you think uh, the pandemic would have kind, kind of thrown a wrench in what would have been feasible otherwise? Because I know that with uh, Toronto, uh, they're there have been plenty of issues with uh, cross-border travel with all this. Obviously, they had to spend the season uh, in a AAA park in Buffalo, less than ideal. Uh, and for the upcoming NBA season, uh, there, there's talk about the Raptors having to you know, play their games in an American city. And so do you think that any hypothetical Canadian expansion uh, is, is, is dampened in terms of likelihood by what we're dealing with? It's definitely on the back burner. Definitely on the back burner. Uh, you know, given given the situation with uh, you know being able to go across the border right now and being the uncertainty of all that. So yeah, I would say uh, you know if I had to guess, uh, I would say an expansion to Nashville or Vegas would make way more sense right now than Montreal because of everything that's going on. Doesn't mean I wouldn't want to see it happen, but I just think it's definitely on the back burner. This this is the world we're living in, right? <laughs> yep, got to get used to it, huh? <laughs> My last question, this is just on a human level. How has your quarantine been? I haven't seen you in a minute and a half and I miss everybody at NYU. And I mean that genuinely. It's, it's been, it's been difficult to get used to, but as we kind of got into the thick of things, uh, I kind of found it to be a little relaxing. I've had some good time to myself to get some extra reading done and really to study up you know, things that I've been interested in that I maybe haven't had time to do. Uh, so, you know, obviously it's not ideal, but I'm making the most of it for sure. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely miss NYU and diamond dollars and all you guys for sure. So 
it's been it's been tough to get used to, but you know, making the most of it. Based on your answer, it doesn't seem like you pulled the watch Tiger King eight times in a row route that other people did. And I no, applaud I, you for that. You know what's weird? I actually watched Tiger King and I really just did not understand all the hype. But listen, I, I guess if you're really bored, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I'm looking back at it retrospectively. That really wasn't that good of a documentary, but it was all we had and it came at the right time. Those are all yeah. horrible people. It wasn't what the people wanted. It was what they needed at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Liam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate this. You're a fantastic guest. Uh, No worries. I had a great time, guys. Thank you for having me. Liam Gibney, everybody. That's all, folks. Now, Sam, this was a great week as always. Liam was a fantastic guest. Great to have another show in the books. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time once again. We're on the farm. Matt Kovitz, Sam Shapiro. Have a great week, everybody. 